backroom politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is back from politics and live from your nation's capital in Washington, D.C. Join me as they do every Tuesday. He is a retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is the man that we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral Ken, how are you? Great, Justin. How are you? Doing fine. Uh, also on the line, I believe we have the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served as pastor. Wow, we're having all kinds of fun today. This is Backroom Politics. You know what? We're having all kinds of fun with technical issues today. I'm going to bring in Audrey Howerton, who is our associate producer. Audrey, are you on the line? Audrey? Hi, yes, I am. Audrey, what are we doing? <laughs> well, sometimes this thing called the internet doesn't always respond as quickly as we'd like it to. That's okay. all. I, I thought it was a great intro for Alan, though. That was great. It was, I mean, it was a great intro. I, I liked it, too. It's like getting piped every week. Big time. It's like getting piped aboard big time. It's great. That's right. He has his own walk-up music. That's fantastic. You know, I'm just uh, trying to pump you guys up for this good conversation. <laughs> okay, very good. Thank you, Audrey. You can go back to your undisclosed location. And <laughs> uh, obviously, ladies and gentlemen, that is our associate producer, Audrey Howerton, in an undisclosed location somewhere on Cape Cod. And also, as I did before, before he got his walk-up music, Alan Moore. How are you, Alan? I'm good, thanks, Justin, and I I do appreciate that that musical on entrance. Yeah, very good. And I have to make the question: Do we have a Dan Lipner on the line? We have no Dan Lipner on the line. Oh, okay. Well, he's supposed to be joining us here shortly, so we'll get back to him. But we've got a lot to talk about uh, in the 4:30 segment. Uh, we're going to be talking about the big news here in Washington. That is the news regarding the immigration uh, issues down the southern border. We'll talk about that at 4.30, but we want to get uh, started off with the discussion of what happened last Thursday. What did happen last Thursday? Well, a long-awaited Inspector General's report came out of the Department of Justice where basically it was tasked to uh, investigate the actions of former FBI Director James Comey and his actions regarding the Hillary Clinton email investigation. The report suggested that although Comey deviated from department norms and policies, it, none of the actions of either Comey or those involved in the investigation were motivated by, were motivated by political bias. The IG was tasked to broadly review how the agency handled the probe and it came under immediate scrutiny from Republicans and Democrats both. Uh, the report did note that there were five specific instances in which Comey used his personal Gmail for work and, uh, and with the FBI, although it does not say that any classified information pressed through. Uh, the report goes on to cite that Comey gave the, the Comey speech in October of 2016 uh, in San Diego, which was specifically warned against the use of personal Gmail accounts to conduct government business. All again, although hypocritical, although uh, against 
the norms and policies of the Bureau did nothing wrong. Bottom line here is it was an investigation that was conducted. It was a sloppy investigation. It was sloppily handled by the director's office and the director himself, but there was no political bias in that to show that there was any pro-Hillary political run versus anti-Trump political run. Let's start off and asking, you know, the, the, the Alan Moore, the, the IG report as a whole, did it come to as a big surprise to you, the fact that it was um, kind of what many people expected but still drew fire from the Republicans? So the thing that surprised me was that it was as harsh in its assessment of former director Comey's behavior uh, as it was, we, we have this curious irony. Now we have a behavior of Comey, which although it didn't appear to be intended to be harmful to, to secretary Clinton or helpful to, to uh, candidate Trump, now president Trump, it almost certainly had that effect. Um, and, and then, so, so, it was helpful to President Trump's election. Meanwhile, President Trump, for reasons really unrelated to that, um, decides to fire him in a, in a ham-handed way without laying the groundwork. Um, and so the, the, the man who helped President Trump get elected was then fired by the president and has since been trashed by the president in very exaggerated ways. We, we've commented on it before. Jim Comey didn't have many friends when he wrote his book and went on tour, and now he's almost without friends. Admiral Ken, did did the IG report cast the FBI in a bad light? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm troubled, and I have to say, yes, it did. So to explain... Um, for the better part of the last six or eight months, I have been adamant in my defense of the FBI. Um, former uh, fellow general officer and I are almost not on speaking terms because he is a fervent Trump supporter uh, and is basically convinced that the FBI is part of this deep state cabal to basically to undermine the president of the United States. And I had to remind this person that FBI agents take the same oath of office that we as military officers take. I've been adamant in my defense of the FBI. And so I, I think that for people like me, um, anything short of basically um, agreeing with the, the, uh, the comments of Trey Gowdy, who, uh, who saw the report before it was publicized, that the FBI um, did everything that we as citizens would want them to do um, – uh, anything short of that, I think, makes the FBI look bad. I think that um, you know it's 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 one thing for you to use your government email account to send a copy of a speech that you're gonna do. It's one thing to send a copy of your phone directory to your uh, your personal account because Lord knows you may have to call somebody from from home. And, that, and everybody in government knows that that phone director is going to be out of date in about 18 months anyway. Um, but, you know, if you're running an investigation of a, uh, of a nominee of a major political party for the highest office in the land, there's just some things you just can't do. 
And I, I felt myself screaming in ESPN style, come on, man, really? And I think it gave, it gave fodder to both sides, both the Republicans and the Democrats. And I think at the end of the day, the FBI and Chris Wray got left holding the bag. And it's unfortunate. And I still believe in the FBI. You know, you know, I've got you know, one or two friends and some new, some new acquaintances I think highly of. Before, before I aspired to be a naval officer, I wanted to be in the FBI. Uh, I've always thought very highly of them, but I think this report really, really does not leave them in, in good good standing with with uh, as as good as it should be. Yeah, Alan Moore, following up on that, you know, there were several named agents in this IG report that had made on personal Twitter accounts and personal text messages. Uh, their support for Hillary Clinton known in their uh, non-vote for Donald Trump. But the IG still found that they did their job. In fact, uh, two of the agents that were named in the report actually wanted to force tougher subpoena powers on Hillary Clinton and her staff regarding emails. Weird. Is, is it that the, the Republicans aren't reading everything and that they just don't understand that, in fact, the investigation of the IG showed that the email investigation was trying to go harder on Hillary Clinton, not softer? Well, you know, I, th- I think the answer on that question is a little bit unresolved, and, and it, it, it reminds us of the, the, uh, the, the risks of taking too close a look at a couple of individuals and drawing broad-based conclusions. We we have to agree now, no matter what you think of of Jim Comey, um, that he screwed up in some important ways. Not out of malice necessarily at all. Not out of out of uh, uh, political preference, but his own sense of right and wrong, which I think uh, to a degree went off the rails. Now the question is, if Comey was wrong. Was the FBI also wrong? And unfortunately for the FBI, which my sense of it behaved and continues to behave at a very high level, they are tainted by Comey's behavior and and by the unfortunate back and forth between a couple of individuals who were involved in in this investigation. And and, uh, so... Uh, when your leader messes up, um, and if uh, the word out is that you you're 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 protective of uh, your leader, and then uh, uh, then there, and you've got a few other examples of some bad apple, at least partial behaviors, then you you're a loser, as Ken points out. You know they 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 lose uh, they, they drop down a notch or two. Comey drops down several notches. But I think the FBI will withstand all of this because, by and large, they're honorable people fulfilling their uh, uh, their 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 vows um, to defend the Constitution. But nobody, if you're in the FBI or in law enforcement or in the executive branch, wants any kind of of taint or suspicion, especially when you have a president who is name calling and exaggerating the importance of the content of that IG report. 
Yeah, but, but Alan, let me follow up with you on that because, you know, it strikes me that, you know, first of all, these agents, and there were dozens of agents working on this Hillary Clinton investigation that the IG investigated. There were dozens of agents. Many of them are have their own personal opinions or political beliefs, but every one of them, and I would venture to say even Comey, put those uh, personal beliefs aside to do the job that they were sworn to do, and that seems to be uh, an aspect of the IG's findings that, in fact, a majority with the exception of maybe Comey, majority of the investigators on this investigation acted within the scope and acted professionally, putting aside their personal biases. Why does the Republican Party still paint such a, a broad brush saying that the top echelon of the FBI is corrupt? Well, let's be careful of, of who we attribute those, those views to. Um, the president certainly has... Uh, has has jumped on the, this notion uh, that and exaggerated the findings to a grotesque degree when he goes out there and says this shows the IG report shows that bad behavior um, w- w- existed throughout the FBI and totally vindicates me the president from any suggestion of collusion with the Russians or bad behavior it does no such thing it did not address that question but it allowed there's just enough to give the president the ability to say see i told you so most americans won't look into the details and if you tend to believe the president you say yeah see our president said it exonerates him so it must do that and it does not it's one another one of these examples of who do you believe a, a, a person you choose to trust or the facts? And, and I, I don't, I don't know what to do about that fact. I mean, the FBI's harmed Comey's harm and Comey, Comey's bad behavior. Comey's mistakes grew out of his, what appears to be his own hubris and his own sense of moral duty. And I think he miscalculated, um, but that doesn't mean that all of the FBI uh, made similar mistakes, is somehow tainted, is somehow slanted. But that's where we're left now. Uh, and most of the people talking about this are a small group of folks around the president, a few on the outside. This is not a, a position shared by the majority of Republicans in the Congress. But Admiral Ken, you know, when we talk about it, we hear – you know, we, we see um, Andy Biggs of Arizona, Matt Gates and Ron DeSantis of Florida, all of whom signed a letter last week requesting that previous versions of this report be sent to the Hill for review because they believe that the top echelon of the FBI actually changed the findings of the IG and put political pressure on the IG to change it. It, it, This calls into question the entire bureau. Is that fair? Well, it's not fair, but, you know, going back to what I said a few moments ago, um, nothing short of an A uh, on that report would would basically allow um, people to to do anything uh, other than, than, 
them to say, yeah, you know, the FBI did what they're supposed to do. And now, because they didn't get an A, uh, putting it in, in uh, grade school terms, um, there's, there's, there's tons of uh, insinuations that can be left open to interpretation. And when you've got the president of the United States and most of um, the, um, the, the body politic that, that, uh, that supports him, um, calling into question the integrity and veracity of the FBI and a report from the FBI's IG comes in that, that says, yeah, you know, yeah, things aren't, things aren't so good here in, in, uh, at, at headquarters. You know, you, you've basically opened yourself up for all kinds of criticisms, be they legitimate or not. And it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, I, I think the FBI, you know, since the days of Martin Luther King and J. Edgar Hoover has really done a pretty good job of cleaning it, cleaning themselves up. And it's important to remember that these are the same people that routinely put down uh, all kinds of terrorist threats that are going on in this country that we, we never even hear about sometimes. And, um, and, and to, you know, to, to, to see uh, that organization get, uh, get smeared, um, for political purposes, uh, led by the the chief law enforcement officer in, in, of the land, you know it's hard to do. And I think when that report comes out saying that they weren't all that they should be, you know it just opens it just opens a floodgate, fair or unfair. It sucks. It just sucks. Uh, Alan Moore, you know when when we look at the president's remarks on Friday, the day after this report was made public. Uh, the president made it a point to say, hey, look, I want to stay out of DOJ uh, investigations before it gets way out of hand. Is, is there not a certain hypocrisy in that? Because he's already <laughs> been the dog whistle that has gotten everybody to come up and say that the upper echelon of the FBI is, in fact, corrupt. Has he not already crossed that line? Well, <laughs> he... It, 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 it it staggers the 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 brain to 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 apply to to respond logically and rationally uh, to to his behavior because all the norms are different. Um, he calls red. He says that red is is green, and thirty five percent of America says yeah, it's green, and everybody else says no, it's not. No. No, no, it's not. No, it's not. But yeah, but Alan, but Alan, yeah, Alan it's, it's ninety. Yeah, but Alan, it's 90% of Republicans that agree with the president that in fact it's green. No, no, I, I it, it's about 85%. But it, we don't need to quibble. Um, it, it, the problem is that the number of independents has been growing because uh, the, of the disarray among Republicans and among Democrats. So all I'm saying is it's it yes. Yes, it works with Republicans, but Republicans are shrinking in size, and it, it translates to about 35% of America. The president seems comfortable with an um, appeal to that 35% strategy. Yes, 85% of his base. Um, I know we're going to get to this whole immigration question, and that's creating some new challenges for at least some people in his base. Um, but his whole strategy appears to be and continues to be to, to uh, do everything he can to appeal to that 
particular group, and he's happy with that. Um, and the rest of us are shaking our hands, trying to understand what and what in the hell's going on here. But we've been doing that now for well over a year, as mm-hmm. Ken has talked about, as we've all talked about. Um, and and uh, he, he he gets a few threads of argument out of uh, an IG report, most of which condemns Jim Comey. And he it, he draws an expanded, exaggerated set of conclusions from it. And 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 his base says yes, yes, yes. Uh, FBI is corrupt. Leave them alone and end the Mueller investigation, which is not a focus of the IG report. You know, what I find interesting um, is uh, the, the president's comments after the report came out. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's almost as there's this, you know, complete disconnect from things that he has previously said on his part. Uh you know, the report comes out, you know, see, I, you know, I knew firing Jim Comey was the right thing to do, and that's why I did it, forgetting that he'd already admitted to Lester Holt that he did it to basically stop the, the Mueller investigation, and that uh, he said to the Russians, now that I've gotten rid of Jim Comey, and I got, I'm, 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 not, I'm in the clear now. I mean, it's kind of like and, – and, and the, the report the, – the Trump supporters – seem to have that that same disconnect they want to pretend that that oh don't pay attention to what the right hand's doing because the left hand's over here doing something else it's 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 absolutely insane and i i honestly i've never seen anybody uh do this let alone anybody get away with doing it let me ask this question then uh alan moore did did the report put more pressure on Rod Rosenstein, the assist, the, uh, the deputy attorney general, did is there now pressure on Rod Rosenstein now that this IG report is out to put more pressure on Re- Director Ray and the FBI as well as more pressure to keep a, a firm thumb on the Mueller investigation? It, it's hard to know. It's a very good question um, because we can sit here and say the – the IG report did not show what the president says it does. But the more that the president repeats that and the more that Republicans, commentators and others pick up on that line and say, so time to, to fire, time to stop the Mueller investigation or time to put a time limit on it, time to fire Mueller. uh, This kind of stuff creeps in and, it is not the focus of the IG report, but as we've learned increasingly, it doesn't matter if the president can sell a particular narrative and there's just a, a, a shred of connectivity. Um, and if you have uh, Giuliani out there making the same argument and the president's uh, campaign chairman for his election campaign saying, fire sessions and Rosenstein so you can get rid of Mueller. That's just the latest. And it's tied to the IG report, which does not address those questions. Bottom line here, before we go to break, guys, did the IG report take away from the credibility of the FBI as America's top law enforcement agency? Admiral Ken. I think temporarily, yeah. Um, I think that... um, um, you know that that thirty five percent 
of Americans that seem to be willing to follow President Trump over a cliff, um, they're, they're still Americans, and they still um, create um, a, uh, a center of gravity, if you will, um, that detracts away from uh, the, the, the positive thought and the positive things that that, that organization uh, has done and is currently doing. Uh, I think they'll get it back. I think Chris Ray, uh, if he's as good as I hope he is uh, of a leader, uh, understands you know what he's got to do, and I you know and and I think you know he he's probably got um, his his messaging, his strategic messaging uh, uh, and communications plan uh, coming up to be able to say, look, you know we've 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 got a situation. We've got to be flawless in our execution. If we make a mistake, we've got to be honest about it. And there's just certain things that we just can't do. Um, and I'm going to basically try and lead the charge and, and do things the right way and, uh, and, and set an example for you, a better example for you than even the President of the United States is going to set for you. Alan, more same question to you. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with Ken. It, it is, a, at minimum, a temporary uh, setback for FBI and its credibility. Hopefully it will be relatively short-lived. We, 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 we don't know. The sad part, I was watching uh, as yesterday and hearing both Ray and uh, Horowitz, who's the IG, uh, were, were dismissing this idea that the president has been peddling, that the, the, that the IG report shows that Mueller's a whole effort is a witch hunt and that the IG report exonerates the president from these questions of collusion and, ob- and obstruction. And they both said, no, it doesn't. It doesn't speak to those questions. But what they say in a hearing in the Senate is borderline irrelevant compared to, especially with Republicans, uh, to, to what the president says and some of his paid henchmen. It's, it's a sad commentary on where things are, but, but yes, in, in, in answer to your question, the FBI has done some harm by, uh, by this report. It's negative, and it's about the FBI, and, and President Trump has, has defined it, interpreted it in his, uh, in his way, and that's what many, many people will hear, and, and that's all they'll hear. And the dog whistle continues. All right, I'm going to let that be the last word. When we come back, we're going to talk about the very difficult and very sensitive situation happening on the southern border of the United States. This is the best political talk show you never heard of. It is Backroom Politics, live from Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. You know, Shelley's Backroom has been hosting Backroom Politics for seven years. Seven years. It's still unbelievable we've been doing it that long. But make no mistake about it, Shelley's Backroom is one of a kind in Washington, D.C. Shelley's is a comfortable retreat for cigar aficionados and those who simply want to unwind. The casual but elegant space features soft lighting, cozy couches, and overstuffed chairs. Shelly's Backroom is a cigar-friendly establishment, but the -the state-of-the-art air purification system keeps the atmosphere comfortable for smokers and non-smokers alike. Sit back and enjoy yourself while chatting with friends or watching one of the eight high-definition TVs, or come by any Tuesday, enjoy your favorite cigar or one of the signature cocktails, and watch how Backroom Politics is made. 
Convenient to public transportation and the sites of the nation's capital, Shelley's is easily dividable to accommodate intimate gatherings or large-scale special events. Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob says, it's the place to be. politics and welcome back to the best political talk show you've never heard of it is backroom politics live on blog talk radio from your nation's capital washington dc joining me as they do every tuesday admiral ken caradine and the honorable alan moore hey we're going to take a minute uh as the rest of the team checks in at the top of the hour but we're going to start the discussion which will probably be a long discussion that will probably go through one or two of the breaks and that is the sensitive situation going on on the southern border. As has been widely reported, uh, there is a crisis of humanitarian proportions going on in the uh, southern border of the United States. As a result, over 2,000 children have been separated from their parents in what looks like an immigration, an illegal immigration crackdown at the southern border between the ports of entry. It has drawn the ire of 
not only Democrats but Republicans as well in their uh, in, in, in in Republicans that are normally supporters of the president, and it has caused a presidential trip up to. Capitol Hill this afternoon at 5.30, a situation that we will be monitoring. There are several bills right now being proposed to deal with this situation. However, it is something that is very fluid and constantly changing by the minute. Uh, let's let's start here and, and talk about what the reality is. Um, Alan Moore, we've talked about this situation before, and the situation regarding the uh, the southern border and the issue on uh, children. It, it, it's it, it's a difficult situation that kind of puts the Border Patrol and Department of Homeland Security in an awkward position. What is sparking the widespread? discussion and animosity towards this policy that's going on so, so the, the the thing the, the thing that captures everybody's attention is one the images of what's going on of small children crying as they're uh, as they're either being separated from their parents or standing by while, while their parents are are being frisked Two, there's some audio that has come out that was uh, surreptitiously collected inside one of these buildings. Three, the images of people, young people, uh, although remarkably few uh, children and girls, uh, because this is video that was supplied by DHS, but they're basically people in very large Cages, very large fenced-in areas with padlocks inside much larger buildings. The problem is created. So that, that's the political problem, this, this imagery and the fact that the president has, uh, has made some choices and the people in his administration, uh, uh, particularly Attorney General Sessions, on how to enforce existing law. They are choosing to enforce the law differently from the way Presidents Bush and Obama uh, enforced, um, basically removing any and all discretion from the Border Patrol people when someone comes across, not at a normal point of entry, but elsewhere, illegally with children, in the case of Presidents Obama and Bush before, um, they would keep the family together, even as they uh, uh, took the, uh, the, the offending persons into custody. Uh, in April, the president decided on a zero-tolerance policy, meaning no more discretion. If you come across illegally, meaning at a, at other than a normal port of entry, um, then we're going to we're, we're going to arrest you and we're going to hold you somewhere and we're going to separate you from your children. The, the president has tried to have it both ways. He says he deplores the separation of families, but that he has no choice under the law, which is absurd on its face because he's uh, the one who decides as, as presidents often do in exactly how to enforce existing laws. And then even more absurdly, he tries to blame the Democrats, saying this is a Democrat law. They need to fix it. Um, 
it it is it 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 is just <laughs> one of the big great untruths that this president has uh, has chosen to tell and it is creating great stress in the country and great stress among his fellow republicans a growing number of whom are saying mr president you can change this and you need to do that and i'm going to be careful i got to be careful because i come at this at this topic from a very unique situation. Uh, as I've stated before on the show, uh, I, I've been involved in migrant interdiction. I've worked closely with the Border Patrol. I've worked closely in interdicting illegal or migrants trying to enter the United States through avenues outside of the legal ports of entry. So I've got to be, I have a unique observation on this. And the question I have and I want to go to Dan Littner on this. By the way, Dan Littner, uh, former Joe Biden political operative and bar certified attorney in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia, has joined us. Uh, first of all, how you doing, Dan? I am doing well, though uh, I wish the lady in New York Harbor's light was shining a little brighter on the White House at the moment. Well, you know, that's. I want to talk about that because you bring up you bring up a good topic. I want I want to touch on that real quickly. Here's the thing about that: a lot and a lot of people in the media, and including Dan Lipner just now, have been talking about how the situation on the southern border has taken away the luster of the symbol of Lady Liberty in New York Harbor. What everybody seems to forget is that when people were coming into New York Harbor and seeing, for the better part of now almost two centuries, Lady Liberty right there at the Verrazano Narrows, when they were coming in, they were coming in on passenger ships, and they were going to Ellis Island. And Ellis Island was, in fact, a legal port of entry where they were processed. And while they were being processed, Families with children were separated then for holding for any multitude of reasons for further investigation. They, many children were separated from their families for uh, medical evaluation and suitability evaluation into the country. They don't talk about that, and there's a certain uh, almost uh, hypocrisy in using Ellis Island and Statue of Liberty as a point. The reason why I bring this up, and Dan, I want to go to you, is, you know, we've, we've heard the president talk that we are a nation of laws, and understandably he uses that as a phrase of convenience. But in this instance here, it is very clear that unless you enter the country through a viable port of entry, you are committing a crime, and that crime is a jailable crime. Is it the fault of the Border Patrol and the Department of Homeland Security that what they are doing is their job by enforcing immigration laws that have been on the books for the better part of over 120 years? Well, a couple of things. One, let's go with the the history here, and there's a slur that exists that most people don't know the history of, but simply using the, the, the words that, that the acronym stands for, without papers is the, is the, uh, are, are the words where the acronym comes from. Not everyone came to this country in the great immigration flow through Ellis Island. My own folks came through a port of entry in Galveston, Texas, because that was also a legal port of entry. However, I have a sneaking suspicion most Americans have that, that narrative because it's a narrative of convenience, and modern technology might make it a bit more difficult for everyone to trace that history 
with as much purity as everyone claims they have. So let's start there. Next, let's just go with the full decency of what's going on and how immoral this discretionary action this administration is taking. The idea that this is the only way to accomplish their goal is insane, not to mention the fact that the attorney general in a very public policy statement said that part of the reason for enforcing the law in this way was to function as a deterrent without regard to the kind of harm this will have for those children, taking an additional step that uh, the Stephen Miller, while as far as I know the, the, the quote isn't on camera, but it is cited by a couple of reporters, also saying this was meant as a, as a serious deterrent to keep people from wanting to come to this country. That flies in direct contradiction to how we consistently want to view ourselves and our country and our immigration policy. You can look at how Ronald Reagan discussed this country as the shining city on the hill to the actual phrases that are emblazoned on the Statue of Liberty herself. No way around it. This is wrong. And to some extent, the people who are cheering this, there is a moral question as to whether or not they have any standing to speak morally on anything at all. So Go ahead. Go ahead. So I, I, I'd like to just gently correct you both. The, the place is not to start with how we used to do things because at one point uh, we treated disease with leeches. So we, we've kind of progressed past that. And so justifying separating parents from children based on what we did in the, the early days of, uh, of the Statue of Liberty uh, grand, uh, greeting immigrants as they came into the harbor is, is not that relevant. Uh, starting with the law which is not really the law. It's, it, it is a policy statement. I think at the end of the day, uh, the thing that people seem to forget is that unless you're a Native American, we're all immigrants here, every last one of us, some, 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 by, some by choice, some not so much by choice. But nobody on this call you know, is, is, you know, came, you know, was, was here originally. And I think part of the problem is that, um, is that the president – has always had, you know, a, a bee in his bonnet um, or his toupee uh, about the the issue of of, of immigrants and um, and and their place in this society. Uh, his use of the words "infest" just today, uh, I think, is, is 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 very telling about his attitude. Dan's absolutely right. This is mean. This is wrong. We're we're supposed to be better than this, and to let, um, you know, to let. Uh, a small group of of, uh, of people, i.e., you know, Trump's um, Trump's core support or uh, support, um, let let that drive the narrative on us. It's just absolutely crazy. Mika Brzezinski, who I'm not a big fan of, uh, the other morning said it best, and she asked the question, "What does it take, guys? What does it take for people um, in the in the Senate and the House to stand up finally and go, okay, enough is enough." Hold on, let me, let me talk about something here because, you know, when we're talking about the policy here, you know, again, everybody has a short memory when it comes to the history of immigration here. Going to Dan's point, you know, all right, Ellis Island was a port of entry. His relatives came in 
through uh, through Beaumont, Texas, or Galveston, Texas. Uh, you know, all of our families came in through a port of entry at some point. None of them that I believe, and again, if I'm wrong, correct me, our relatives came over through the legal manner, buying a ticket on a transatlantic or a trans-Pacific ship and going through a port of entry like Ellis Island. Or that is presumptuous, Dustin. It, it, it may be, but still, that is still the basis of a lot of immigrants. Look, nobody is more pro-immigrant than I am, but we still have laws that have to be enforced to make it fair. And the reality is, and this is, and, and this is the perspective I bring it on, I go back and look at when I had to enforce feet wet, feet dry during the Haitian and Cuban boat list of the 1990s. We didn't see the outpouring and rage that came with feet wet, feet dry. That was a policy of zero tolerance enforcing the law, and Bill Clinton was the one. It seems that, you know, it seems that we... No, 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 you, 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 no, you have the political history on this wrong. How? How do I have the, it wrong? The, 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 the fact of the matter is you actually did see outrage Rage and part of the reason for the discrepancy in that is the split between the Cubans and the Haitians, just as you said. The difference, the biggest difference, is the Cuban coalition within the United States is much louder and much more politically active than the Haitian coalition in the United States. And some could argue that th- there is also a complexion difference between the Haitian immigrants and the Cuban immigrants yeah, that were arriving. Yeah, but, but it was yeah, hugely yeah, controversial, yeah, yeah. and the Cuban yeah. community went nuts with, when but, Bill Clinton but, yeah. initially wanted to hold the Cuban immigrants to the same standards as everyone else. And Dan, I'm telling you right now that that is where you're inaccurate. I can tell you right now that I returned I in and, Miami for it. And Dan, I'm telling you, I was the one that was picking up both Cubans and Haitians. I still have the memory of a Cuban grandmother crying on her knees, grabbing my leg as I'm trying to drive a Coast Guard boat, when I picked her family up, three children, three adults, and they were within a half mile of the Florida Keys. They could see the cars on the causeway, and I had to pick them up out of the water and take them two miles offshore and drop them on a boat to repatriate them back to Guantanamo Bay. It was not a Haitian and Cuban. We were not giving preference to Cubans. We were not giving preference to Haitians. It was an it was a it was an universal enforcement of a law that Bill Clinton took some heat for, but it is a law that is still enforced today. They still do feet wet, feet dry. At the and Justin, did you and, keep those families? To, and Justin, did you keep those families together as a singular unit if they were traveling as a unit? And again, this is another fact that that eludes the media and the politicians here in Washington, is the fact that when we picked them up and we brought them back to either Port-au-Prince or to Cuba, we separated those families for anywhere from 12 to 72 hours to process them to make sure that they were medically that they were medically fit, that they that they were. Uh, reunited with their family in a timely manner, but they went through a process where they were separated for a part of a time. That is to protect the children and make sure that they are medically well enough to be repatriated back to their country, where in many instances, the lack of medical attention they may get is dramatic. 
We don't talk about that stuff. This is a matter of what we've done is we've politicized the immigration policies of this country, and I think it's a bad situation. And, again, I apologize. I've taken off my moderator hat because, you know, this is something I can talk to. And I apologize, and I hear Alan laughing. But, Alan, let me go to you. When we, when yeah. we look at yeah. the immigration policies that are involved here, is it not right or is it not a good statement, as Kirsten Nielsen, the Secretary of Homeland Security, pointed out, to tell the people, look, if you are seeking legal entry, if you are seeking asylum, go to a port of entry. We will not turn you away. Is that a wrong message? Well, so, so a couple of things. I, 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 let me start by saying I, I – I, much as I hate to say this, I agree with, to a degree, both you and Dan about the history. The problem is you're wow, talking about two different times. Mark that yeah, you're moment. Ta- well, yeah, but don't get too excited because Dan was right in terms of early days when the Cuban, uh, the, the, the Muriel boat lift occurred and we, we opened the doors to about 100,000 Cubans. We would never do that with, uh, with the Haitians, uh, never did. Um, later, it was much later when, as you were pointing out and what you were involved in, we were treating them much the same. But, but Dan, I think, was correct in terms of the early days when the, when the politics was very different and uh, Castro was still alive, still in power, and we were glad to stick it in, in his eye and there wasn't the animus towards immigrants. We, we, we had taken in hundreds of thousands from Vietnam and so on after the war. Now, we're in a different place today, and when we talk about America and what we stand for and where we come from, um, believe me, I think my bona fides are pretty clear uh, on all of this and in many, many years working with refugees. Um, But we also need some control over who comes in, what the process is, some level of orderliness, some agreed-upon sense of how many people can come in, who can come in, what you do to come in. The law that everybody's talking about, but not in too much detail, um, it sim- simply says if you come in illegally and are, and are, and are arrested and detained, the first time, it's a misdemeanor. Now, what's really different here and where the presidential discretion occurs, and different presidents have done this differently. All of our recent presidents have detained people and separated children. The difference is, case of Bush and Obama, there was far more discretion and a, and a much greater humanitarian imperative of leaving a a parent with younger children, A, of believing that they were telling the truth and of leaving them together no matter what. It's the, there were, there were, there were tens of thousands of, uh, of interceptions and hundreds of thousands of deportations under Obama and, and, and under Bush before that. We sort of forget. It all sounds like this is just, just cruel Trump. What's different with Trump and what's cruel here is the fact that there's zero tolerance. There's no ability for anybody at the border to look at a situation and say, oh, my God, 
This is a newborn. And this woman just came across the, the Rio Grande. She tried the port of entry, and the wait at the port of entry was three days, if that. And they had no place to go. And they heard about a way to come across another way. There's, there's, there's thousands of different kinds of stories and circumstances, and it's why you need discretion at the border. When you took away discretion, you immediately created this problem. Some people knew that was going to happen. Others said, hey, that'll, that'll tell people, don't come here, or you're going to be separated from your children. Don't, don't get the idea that if you go to a port of entry, everything moves nice and free and clean and smooth. It does not. The numbers this year are four times higher than they were last year. And last year's numbers, which were way off, way down from prior years, for a variety of reasons, were driving the president crazy because he wanted no, no one coming in. And there were something like 10,000 people, and now we're operating at four to five times that, that rate. And, and he's telling his people, stop them, don't let them in. The Stephen Millers of the world say, well, here's what you do. And John Kelly talked about this a year ago. We may have to just start separating families to create a powerful disincentive for these people to come in the first place. Now, one last thought, and then I'll get off my soapbox. Um, the, the people that are coming in now that are so desperate, they're not Mexicans. They're coming in from Central America. How do they get there from Central America? By crossing Mexico, hundreds of miles of Mexico. So they're not just seeking something that's safer. They're seeking to get into America. And folks, sympathetic as I am to the, 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 the desire of people, that whole notion and mindset feeds on itself. We know that the word is out in all these countries. Get into America and claim asylum. I'm not saying they're a bunch of liars. All I'm saying is they're coached on how to talk about the kind of exposed risk that they have faced and would continue to face. But they're not satisfied simply with safety, not that I blame them. They're not going south to South America. They're not stopping in Mexico. They're all coming up to America. We can't take everyone. We simply cannot. We do need a system we can control and where there's some level of fairness about who gets in. You just get in if you show up at the door, having crossed all of Mexico and maybe another country along the way. Um, I don't know, but you know how you deal with that? By compromise in the political system, by engage, pulling everybody in, all the interests, and saying, what do we do, folks? We don't want to take in everybody. We don't want to separate small children. We don't want to take people with a record. We don't want to put, take people who are lying about who these, the, the folks are with them. How do we manage? Not by turning it into politics, not by harming uh, small children and caging them for indefinite periods, and not lying about why we're in this dilemma, but saying, folks, we're in the dilemma. Let's figure out how to fix this. That's not happening. It's sort of creeping in. When you have Ted Cruz saying, I got a bill that would, <laughs> it would stop the separation, it gets your attention. It's like, wow, it's, <laughs> it's beginning to, to, 
to move into the deeper reaches of the Republican Party, and that's a good thing. Um, and uh, and it probably but, troubles but people Alan, in the way. Alan, Alan, hold on. Let me jump right. in real and, quick. Because and, I, uh, oh, all right, go ahead, Dan Whitner, and then I'll jump in. Go ahead, Dan. No, and and that's the particular part of the 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 real outrageousness of the situation, and where it's fairly narrow. Now, Obama had a very strict immigration policy and deported a lot of people during his presidency, despite what the right wing would have you believe. The real question here is how inhumane the discretion of this president has become. That's the real Agreed. question. So Ted Cruz, and I, I was shocked as, as is Alan, and neither of us are fans of Ted Cruz, that he had a legitimate policy proposal to be a legal proposal, not only to break down or to stop the separation, but to actually continue funding, to get more immigration judges, to speed up the process. It was a legitimate proposal. When Pat Roberts from Kansas also comes out and says this is a moral outrage, when Orrin Hatch comes out and says something similar, these are not liberal people. This is not a political divide between Republican and Democrat. It's between decent and indecent. That's well, where the real question let, is. All right, but let me, let me jump in on this, though. The, the thing about it is, what, number one, that not all children that are being processed here are coming in with their parents. These are children that are being separated from adults, not necessarily their parents. And the second item here is, why is it that we treat the immigration the, 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 those that choose to enter the country outside of a port of entry, thus illegally, why do we treat them and allow them to keep their families when an American who, can, who, who is convicted or when it is arrested for possible criminal behavior is separated from their children? I can tell you as a police officer, I've arrested several people who had their children with them, and I had to separate them because when I arrested the adult, I had to place the children into Department of Children and Family Custody. Why do we have to do that with Americans and not with those who come into this country and commit a crime of illegal entry into the United States? I asked that question. Admiral Ken, I'll start with you. Well, I I don't know. I guess – I would defer to you and Dan being lawyers in uh, law enforcement, but there's an apples and oranges uh, difference kind of feel to this. And um, again, um, uh, I, I, you know, it's one of those things. It, it goes back to uh, uh, an argument. You know, so what's you know what's 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 appropriate uh, viewing material for children versus what's not. You know, if you if you see it and it feels wrong, then it's wrong. You know, if if you see it and it doesn't bother you, then it doesn't. This 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 does not feel like appropriate viewing material for the country. Simply 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 put. Dan, there's a huge divide. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Oh, go ahead, Alan Moore. Go ahead, Alan Moore. No, I I I agree with Ken that 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 there is a massive difference between the the example you're talking about, which is episodic, one off. In a community, somebody's arrested for behavior that's thought to be a, a problem or a danger to the community. Misdemeanors we're talking about here, not felonies. Um, and under some circumstances, people are 
detained, incarcerated, if there are kids with them in a car, if they're reckless driving or something or driving under the influence. There's a community that typically, not always, of course, but that typically has some capacity and capability to absorb those children for a period of time. You cannot compare that to people who come across by the thousands, by the hundreds in different landing spots around uh, uh, every day, day after day after day, and we do not have the capacity. You have the capacity in law enforcement to deal with three kids in the back seat. We do not have the capacity to deal with hundreds of kids. Let's pick an age, right? We don't have to be say under 16, let's say under 10. Um, and so what do you do? Well, you try first of all to do no harm and you don't want to put any extra risk on the community. Moms with small children are not posing a risk to the community. A drunk driver, yes. Um, so, so I don't think I don't think you can call. I don't think you can call it. How do we? How come we treat American offenders so different from uh, offenders coming across the border? The nature of the crime is different. It's why discretion is so important. And yeah, it's but you're talking about. What you're talking about, Alan, is selective enforcement. Is that we, we always giving... have selective enforcement? You there's, know that yeah, you were in law enforcement. And, but there's what always what, selective enforcement. There's always decisions made. But what I'm saying to you is, is that we are literally giving a preference of keeping families together. And by the way, just the logistics of that having having. Criminal offenders, which if they come into the country and they've been deported again, is now not a misdemeanor. They, it is now a felony. If they come across again and they have children with them, putting these people in a detention facility with children creates an unsafe condition in that detention facility. Not just well, for the children, well, but for the adults. Okay, you keep changing the 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 example though. Now it's now they're right. felons. No, 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 no. These the, are, the ones these I'm talking about. I'm just yes, you are because well, the, I, I tell, the the ones if, that were the ones that are most sympathetic, the ones around which the Bush and Obama presidencies were most compassionate, were first timers. Misdemeanor was the charge, and. They figured out a way. They still separate. They still arrested people, detained them. They still separated families. But the default position for the situation with a parent and small children was don't separate them yet. Keep them together. Figure out who they are. Figure out if these are really their kids. Figure out if there's a place that these kids could go. And and it's a luxury that requires manpower and resources, and the system stretched, especially because last year the numbers were down. But the answer they've come up with to sound tough and to talk about it in, in ways that showed what their true objective was, which is create powerful disincentives for people to come across. This is another case of being hoisted on their own petard, uh, to borrow the phrase. 
Um, and and now they're having to figure out what to do. The president crashes around and says, the Democrats did this. This is their law. They got to fix it, which is absurd nonsense. That does that not I, agree. I mean, we just want thing. Norwegians. I, Nothing but Norwegians is all the Democrats want. No, 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 no. In that, in, in, Alan, I will agree with you in that. The, the president in this aspect has absolutely gone out of bounds in his narrative regarding this. The only person that I see that has any credibility or has been showing some sort of compassion is the one person that's been caught between a rock and a hard spot, and that is Secretary Kristen Nielsen of Homeland Security. I mean, let's be clear about this. This is a tough situation. Again, I can say this because I've been there. You are have, you have the pressure of enforcing laws as a border patrol agent or as a member of the Coast Guard or as a field officer with Customs and Border Protection at a port of entry. It is tough to have to see these people that have gone through so much, coming whether it was coming across Mexico and the hot, high deserts, into Arizona or the low country of Texas, or they come across in rafts from uh, Cuba or Haiti or the Dominican Republic and into the Florida Straits. It is tough for us to have to enforce the law that we've been sworn to uphold and still show some sort of compassion. The people that are on the line that are having to make these decisions are parents, their sons, their daughters, their their fathers and mothers. Uh, they, they, these are not these are not people that are doing it in a vacuum. However, it is still the law of the United States that says that they should do this. That there is a legal procedure for them to enter this country, and Justin, that will be and they will be given protections to do so. Uh, don't conflate those who those who are required to follow the orders of those above them with those above them that are giving the orders at their discretion. Justin, I I, I beg to differ with you with regard to uh, the Homeland Security Secretary because just a few days ago she feigned ignorance that that any of this was going on. So you know she 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 is she is uh, she is yet another person. I I let you go. Um, She is yet another person that is allowing her 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 credibility and her reputation to be slimed by her boss. That's, That's the first thing. Second thing, I hear what you're saying. I really do, and, and much like what we talked about in the first segment with some of the bad press that the FBI has heaped on itself, uh, uh, CBP is doing that now. I mean, there's 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 videotape going on right now that's got voices of border agents um, making fun of the fact that these kids are in custody or crying. Okay, so I, I hear what you're saying, but I, you know, so, I right, go hold back. On, hold on. I, I, let, let me let me just talk, let me just talk. I don't want to touch real quickly, Ken, and I'll let you continue. That 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 audio tape of ProPublica, I find I, I there is no cooperation co- that there that that is actually unedited or even done at a Customs and Border Patrol facility. That is my only problem with the ProPublica audio tape, and that has become a driving narrative. There is no video. There is no. Uh, collaboration of the validity of that audio tape. So I I just question until we get confirmation that that is accurate audio, that to me is putting 
more and more pressure on Customs and Border Protection and Department of Homeland Security uh, in putting them in an awkward position. Justin, That's the one thing they're, I want to they're, say. they're paid to be in an awkward position. I'm sorry. When you are, you know what? Here's the deal. You and I both know. You and I both know by virtue of our service that at the end of the day, it comes down to the guys in the field or the guys on the on the ship doing the job. That that's what we're paid for. So I'm not willing to give anybody uh, anybody uh, a break on that. We're paid. We're we're at one time paid to be those people. The point that I'm making here is one that the organization has been put into an into a position that it should not have been placed into and it's been done by the by, by the leadership of this country president and the secretary of home of homeland security and attorney general and the attorney general and the attorney general okay but 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 again you know to say that they are paid to be put in an awkward situation is not fair Ken. it's not fair just enforce the law what? Go ahead. No. Whether or not somebody is a jerk is, 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 is losing the forest for the trees. And while and while I haven't heard this this audio tape, the numbers by themselves are should should be enough to raise this discuss. And the idea that the the you need this additional audio and video to say that this is wrong is problematic. But let's just go with the basics here. So, Justin, you, you mentioned the keeping uh, families together. I'll throw in a random a post from George Takai that he threw up today but with a picture of him being held by his mother in a Japanese internment camp with the simple quote, even when this happened, I was allowed to stay with my mother. So, you yeah, are, it is clearly wait, possible wait, 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 to do stop, this. Stop, stop, stop. You are not comparing Japanese internment camps, which took Japanese-American citizens and interned them, versus those immigrants coming across the border illegally. You cannot compare the two. That is apples and oranges, and that is essential. Justin, 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 that is not what I have done. What I simply said is it is clearly logistically feasible to keep a family cohesive. The government can do it. It's been done before. Not to mention, you can also go with other practical processes of the how people were brought into the country for those who were escaping Vietnam that left with us. We actually housed families together before people were settled in the United States. It is a doable thing. Yeah, if you want to hold on, hold on. If you want to hold on. About, let me yeah. let me let me jump in real quick. Joining us right now on the phone is Sharmila Chari, former uh, former counsel to the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 in Ohio and a bar-certified attorney in the great state of New York and the Garden State of New Jersey. Sharmila, what say you? Hi, Justin. Uh, apologies for the background noise. Hopefully I'll be in a quieter spot in a minute. But I wanted to respond to your assertion that you can't compare what's happening to you know, the migrants escaping Central America to the Japanese internment camps. That comparison has already been made. It's been made by no lesser a person than Laura Bush, the former first lady. That, that image is what's being evoked by the images of children and, you know, and migrant families being put in metal cages at U.S. government detainment facilities. You know, whether or not the legal comparison holds up, that comparison is already out there. That's 
that is the most that is the closest historical image that that these pictures from the border are evoking. So I think that, you know, whether or not you want to compare the episode to that very shameful time in our history, that comparison's already out there. And I, and but, I will tell you right now, Sharma, I will tell you right now, Sharmila, that I, 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 I think that that is an unfair comparison. I think that what the Japanese, to compare this to the Japanese internment camps Look, is I mean, absolutely yes, from a legal r- ridiculous. You're absolutely right. Hey, you the guys, hey, you guys. Was, was far worse. We're, you took this is not going to be a constructive dialogue. No, I, I Sharma no, is correct. It, Mrs. Bush put it out there. Other people have talked about Nazi Germany. We don't have to debate what the best historical parallel is. Agreed. We can talk about this policy, what we think of it, how it came to be, and what should be done about it, and what the political ramifications are. That's my Agreed. Suggestion. Agreed. Allow me to finish the point that I started when I mentioned the logistics of it. The, the, the separating mothers from their children. So if you even, if you even want to go down the road of these kids be, be, be protected because, because they're yes. being trafficked or for, for any kind of, you know, you're worried about sexual mistreatment, the, by the numbers, the odds of a woman being that perpetrator are significantly smaller than men. So separating mothers from their children is far more problematic. This brings us all the way back to the full circle of the use of discretion as opposed to the use of a policy for no other purpose than to be mean. That's the issue. None of this stuff has any rational approach to it other than what the president has said, the, the attorney general has said, what Stephen Miller has said. And I said the joke in passing, the Democrats just want people from Norway when in fact... We know the president has said that out loud in the past. So this is what's actually in question. And pointing out and saying consistent with the policymakers, those who give the orders, acting at their discretion to take away any other discretion in order to simply be cruel, is really what's at play. It's that simple. I, I, it's not, you, and, and I will I will jump in and say, Dan, I think I think it's not just to be cruel; it's to confirm that the dignity of brown-skinned people and black-skinned people are lesser than the dignity of white people. And I know I'll probably get a reaction about that from Justin and Allen, but I think that when you look at the when you look at the policies of this administration, when you look at the way they speak about the mothers and children who are being ripped apart right now, when you look at sort of the the heartlessness, which with this administration has, you know, really just said, look, they're criminals. End of story. That's all they are. Whether they are seeking a better life, whether they are, you know, being violent, they're criminals. You see the, the systemic effect of it is to, is to lower the dignity of brown-skinned people. And 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 and, and Charmla, I, I I have got to disagree with you on that for the sole purpose of the fact that if you look at the the people on the border that are enforcing these laws, the a, a good a good part of the border patrol force are these same brown and black skinned people that you. Oh talk my God, about. Justin! And what? 
Well, well, no. Well, no, go ahead, Ken. If you have something different, show me. Brother, I I I I, I got to tell you this. Look, you know. I, I yes, I would say Ken's op-ed that he put up on the show that you know, talking about police violence against African Americans in the U.S. Just because one of the police officers participating in the violence is also African American doesn't mean that you have you don't have a systemic problem. Sorry, Ken. Thank you, Carmela. Couldn't have said it better. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, let, let's hey, right. So, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me, let me just add a word since oh, I was, I was, I was damned, I was damned by Sharmila <laughs> before I even had a chance to speak. Um, a, I, I don't Alan think there's Justin. any. Well, fine. You mentioned my name, um, <laughs> and so you were damned us both. But uh, I don't for a moment disagree that there are elements of racism in what we're seeing. I don't think that explains it. I think what explains it is more is the fact that there is a flood of people coming in that we cannot control and, and, and we need to come together in Washington, D.C. as politically, not we, but the political leadership needs to come together and say, here are the facts Here's the law. Here's what was done by the Obama administration. Here's what was done by Bush. Here's what we're trying to do. This is not working. Help us figure out what to do about this. So it's playing politics and, yes, playing to some, some uh, racial stereotypes. But as it happens, the numbers of people who are coming in over whom we have very, very little control happen to be coming up from uh, from Central America, so yes, there's a there's a there's a, there's a, a racist element to it. But if those were all people coming, if we had thousands of people a day arriving from Norway, I mean, it's kind of an interesting, fun plot. Um, we because we we wouldn't be welcoming them either. The numbers are staggering, and we've got to figure out what to do, but try to do it in a humane way, consistent with historic American values and the current situation in the world. We can't take everybody who wants to come in. We need an orderly right. process and need some control. And, right. And, uh, Audrey, I believe we have a caller. Caller, uh, welcome to Backroom Politics. What's your question? Yes, good afternoon. I'm, I'm really curious as to why nobody will directly confront this president on the issue. It, it, to me, it always sounds as if people are talking around the issue, specifically with um, children in detention camps. And rather than talking around the issue, why doesn't anybody pull up their big boy pants and say, Mr. President, why can't you end this with an, with an executive order? It's a very valid question. Uh, let me go no, to no, no, Cheryl. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, come on. What does he mean, no one? There, yesterday, half a dozen or more Republicans finally started speaking out. Um, they were slow, but they've, they've got there. So let's not, let's not let the narrative continue. I'm not defending Republicans here, um, but, but uh, uh, Republicans <laughs> have, have learned to be careful in getting crossways with the president. What's interesting about this particular issue is the number of Republicans who have decided to go out, people who've never done it before, 
first ladies, his own wife um, have, 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 have moved out. This is why it's so fascinating from a political standpoint, even, it's, even as it's grotesque from a human standpoint. But yet, I guess I keep waiting for that Joe McCarthy <laughs> moment. When, you know, Mr. President, do you have no decency? I have an answer for well, that. Well, I think part. I think part of this. The oh, sorry, Ken, go ahead. Let's have Ken. Yeah, I'm curious about Ken's answer. Uh, I, I, I it, so the, the it's a two part answer. The first word is chicken. The second word's an expletive that I'm not allowed to say on the air. And um, what you see is a lack of moral courage on the part of the, the members of the Republican Party um, because they know Paul Paul Ryan, who I used to hold in great great regard they know what the right thing to do is they really do but for whatever reason people like he and bob corker wait until they submit their resignations before they start speaking out and saying what the right thing is these guys are afraid of being um uh of going up against the president uh you look at mark sanford down in in south carolina over the weekend uh last week you know he he basically got on the wrong side of the president he lost his race within a matter of days that, and so at some point, they have to realize they are not there for themselves. They are there for the, for the people who elected them and to do the right thing. So the words chicken blank is, is, is the words that I would use. You know, Charmola, I, would agree I have a response. That, so, hold on, so, hold on. Charmola, I, so I would agree with, both what, what every, with everything that both Alan and Ken just said. But I would also, you know, not sh- don't forget to also apportion some blame to the president himself, right? Because he will not allow himself to be in a venue where he can be confronted the way the caller is asking, you know, people to confront him. He's not going to go to a public hearing. He doesn't, he limits his press availability and the availability of himself to be questioned to friendly media outlets. Do you think Sean Hannity is going to question him about his decency? Absolutely not. The president insulates himself from this kind of criticism as well. So while I certainly agree that it's incumbent on Republican leaders to continue to speak out on this, horrific policy, which, and, you know, I'm sure they're saying some tougher things to him in private. It's incumbent for them to say this in public as well. Part of it is the fact that the president doesn't want to be held accountable and won't put himself in a place where he can be held accountable. Dan Lipner. So I have a suspicion based on what's everything else is happening, not to say that there isn't some moral courage that has finally taken place in the Republican Party. I will grant that benefit of the doubt since I am actually pleased that even Ted Cruz has chimed in on the side of the angels here, or at least seemingly the side of the angels. That said, my suspicion is part of the Trump coalition might be fraying, and specifically that part of the Trump coalition that is bothered by what we are seeing with these children is represented in his own press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I think all of these images are fraying Republican white women from the Trump coalition, and suddenly people like Ted Cruz, who's up for re-election this year, might suddenly start seeing some electoral issues that Trump doesn't start kicking for them. All right. Well, listen, well, I'm going to let that be the last word. We're going to, we're going to take a break. Um, this is obviously a, a subject that is not going away anytime soon. We're going to continue to monitor it. In fact, uh, the president shortly will be leaving the White House to go to the Capitol for a meeting with Republicans to discuss the several bills that are being considered both in the House and the Senate 
to help rectify this problem. We're probably going to continue this dialogue next week as to how do we actually fix this. We'll talk about that next week. But when we come back, we want to talk about the growing tariff war that's going on between not only our allies, but one of our biggest trading partners, China, and the problems that could present to this country. Uh, the caller, thank you for calling, by the way. This is Back from Politics Live from Washington, D.C. on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Politics. And we're back with the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics live from Washington, D.C. on Blog Talk Radio. 
Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Dan Littner, Sharma Achari, Alan Moore, and uh, Admiral Ken Carradine. Joining us from an undisclosed location up in Cape Cod is our associate producer, Audrey Howerton. Hey, uh, we're going to talk tariffs for a second, uh, because in case you haven't noticed, uh, we've got a trade war going here with China. Uh, the president, as late as yesterday afternoon, has put a possibility of putting tariffs, high-margin tariffs, on just about everything that we import from China, creating a trade war at which President Xi Jinping has come back and said, we will retaliate and retaliate hard. Uh, this has put the economy in a very awkward position. Uh, the Dow was down as much as 500 points at one time today on word of the tariffs and the trade war. And many economists that I've talked to and those that have been on television stations across the country are all stating concern that this is a very dangerous practice that the White House has gotten itself into. Uh, let's go to you, Alan Moore. Let me start off with you real quickly. Uh, as you see it, what did the president exactly come up with as far as the real big shot towards China that would spark this war? What's happened over the past couple of days that made this such a concern for economists and those on Wall Street? Well, the first thing he did was delivered on a threat. Now, we've, got, we've come to expect that he's likely to do that however absurd or unproductive or controversial a threat may be. He, he, he's happy to lie about a lot of things, but he seems to feel like uh, there's a compelling need to, quote, deliver on the things that he talked about during his campaign, whether or not they enjoyed widespread support. This was something we can thank uh, Steve Bannon for in part. So he said he was going to increase, he was going to impose tariffs, he was going to cancel uh, some trade deals. He was going to opt out of some trade deals because we were getting taken to the cleaners. We were the worst trade negotiators in the history of the world and that everybody was picking our pocket. I don't agree with that. I've spent a lot of time professionally and so on thinking about these things, working in those areas. I don't agree, but that's where he's coming from. When it came to China, China is has been – um, in many, many instances, a bad actor. In other instances, they just beat us fair and square because they had some advantages and certain kinds of products that we didn't have. I have no quarrel with the desire to, to pressure China to change some of its behavior, particularly with regard to the, to, to the forced exchange of or theft of intellectual property, the, the, the kind of knowledge that allows people to, to build certain kinds of things that, that, that we created and we invented. What he's done, though, is used where you might want a scalpel and some strategy and getting the allies to agree and maybe applying some, some allied pressure. He just wants to go his own way against China, against the AU, against Canada, against Mexico. Uh, he's got this simple-minded notion that if we run a trade deficit um, uh, of any size with any country, then somehow they're taking advantage of us. He's had that view for decades. So he, he's, he, he also thinks that because we're so big and strong and everybody wants to trade with us, that we can apply pressure and they will just collapse and say, oh, darn, okay, shoot, jigs up, boy, he figured us out, darn it. Well, it was good while it lasted. 
That's not how they feel. That's certainly not how the the Chinese feel. The Chinese who own a trillion dollars of American debt or so or thereabouts or more or, or several trillion actually. So so it's not that they're not without leverage and they also have hundreds of millions of dollars of imports from the United States. The initial proposal of 50 of, of it's about 34 billion that he wants to impose a tariff of about 25% on and he's got another 16 billion under review that is being considered and then yesterday he was talking about as much as another 200 billion of imports that might also need a tariff um and the the, the so far the chinese have said you're going to do 34 billion we'll we'll do 34 billion of us uh imports uh exports to china and we'll do exactly what you do to us and that's got the, the the both sides of this equation create a lot of uncertainty and nervousness on Wall Street. So either comp- companies that export, like a lot of our ag interests, soybeans, et cetera, they're freaked out that maybe the, the Chinese will start buying Brazilian soybeans instead of American soybeans. And then the companies that, that import Chinese goods, whether it's Walmart, where every other thing in the store is made in China, or uh, the companies in the high-tech field, well, whether it's iPhones or high-tech uh, steel that only the Chinese can make. Um, uh, th- th- there's, there's possible disruption all over America, all with the thought that we're going to bring a bunch of manufacturing back to parts of the U.S. that lost it years and years ago, and it's never coming back. Um, today, the market is beginning to realize that this is the president seems for real, and there's a lot of nervousness. Uh, the, the, the Dow is down almost 300 points at the end, at the close today. So, so, hello, folks. So, there's no free lunch out there. Shamala, you're you're there in the financial district there in New York City. What are you hearing? Is there a legitimate concern that we've literally painted ourselves into a corner, and the president has in fact started a trade war? Something that a lot of his supporters said wouldn't happen. Well, as Ellen pointed out, I think there there is a lot of fear in the market right now, and that's what's creating this kind of volatility and this lack of confidence. Um, yeah, I think that there is some palpable fear that that the president is going to continue to escalate. You've you've seen that pattern with him over and over again, you know, just whether it's, you know, the, on the economy or on the migration crisis or Charlottesville, when he feels that he is being criticized and being attacked or when someone, you know, reciprocates, reciprocates with he, the insults that he, you know, dishes out, he doubles down. And so I think that there's going to continue to be uncertainty um, while this sort of escalating tariff dance is happening. And, you know, no, no one is quite sure where it's going to end. Dan Lipner, let me, let me pose a question to you because this is something that's kind of crossed my mind over the past few days that we've seen this, uh, the initial shots go towards a trade war. It, the Democrats, it would seem to me, are kind of caught between a rock and a hard spot where the president legitimately has a strong and robust economy. Uh, we've seen higher wages. We've seen uh, low unemployment. We're basically at essential jobless, you know, a, a, a full workforce market right now. Um, yeah, the arguably, higher wages thing, uh, you said a little too matter-of-factly, but continue your question. But, but what, what I guess what I'm saying is the Democrats are kind of caught between a strong economy, yet a president that is literally putting the economy in jeopardy uh, by starting trade wars with the EU and China. 
can the Democrats really come up with a legitimate message and a strong presence for the midterms that makes it uh, an issue in these elections? I mean, I'm not certain that question applies. So there are a bunch of different things. So first, the item about the the rising wages, that's suspect to say the least. And there's actually some economics thought that's finally come out that has suggested the, the new globalized economy as well as electronic efficiencies for to find pricing and all, all sorts of stuff suggests that the, the, the traditional model that would cause – cause wages to rise, in, particularly for the uh, low-skilled workers or even some mid-range to some high-skilled workers, to rise is not as clear as it once was because even workers are dealing with a global market. So that, that one item is worth noting. What is clear is these trade wars are driving up prices. And while I don't work with my hands and with lumber, the fact that Lumber prices have gone up 20% president's uh, leadership in part because of the, the, the saber rattling and these trade wars. This is a thing that affects working people. Now, when that comes home to roost, that's the question. Since a lot of those same folks and a lot of those same jobs for various different reasons are now occupied by people who represent red state America. The Democrats have managed to be alienated either from their own work or the work of Republicans from people who do real work for a living. So the Democrats, while tailoring a message, it's what this president does. And midterm elections are frequently a question on the, the party in power, and the Republicans are in power everywhere. They you have the House, they have the Senate, they have the White House. So if any of these policies are beginning to affect regular Americans or regular Americans are beginning to get offended by them, that's, that's all laid at the feet of the president. The Democrats' biggest worry and biggest problem is fielding a good slate of candidates. And uncharacteristically, it looks like we've been doing it. The off-year elections uh, just here in Virginia proved – to provide a lot of surprises in a very happy sort of way for Democrats. And if we can continue doing that, I'm somewhat hopeful. Now, don't get me wrong. I still am a firm believer in the great Will Rogers line. I don't belong to any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. That said, there's always a chance. (laughs) Admiral Ken, you know, we've heard the president cite these trade wars or these tariffs as being a matter of national security. When you talk about these tariffs against Canada, the EU, and our other close allies, can you see a justification for national security as being a reason to tariff not just our allies, but even China to an extent? The only reason, the reason, the only reason I can come up with is that, um, is that his, his, um, his block of voters will buy anything, and uh, but you know uh, on the I guess the, the the real question that you're asking is no, absolutely not. Canada is not a national security threat. They've been with us every step of the way, and the little uh, half-hearted joke that one of the, the the administration people made about them burning our capital. Well, if that person knew anything, he'd know it was the British. 
So, um, uh, again, I, I just I, – And no, we're putting I, tariffs on them too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just I, – I don't – you know, yeah, every day it's just another day in Wonderland. So, Alan War, I pose the same question to you. You served as an advisor to at least four presidents on this topic. Uh, can you see a justification for Trump, for Trump citing national security for this trade war? No, it's just nonsense. It, it, but his authority to act unilaterally is tied to uh, national security. So uh, he invokes it in order to validate it, even though it's nonsense. So, Cheryl, when we talk about the tariffs, right now we're seeing a lot of economic indicators. that It, it shows a strong economy, but it shows a strong economy on the possibility of teetering towards another recession. Does, does this pose a concern to those on Wall Street as far as, Wait a minute, we've been backing a horse that could literally run us in the wrong direction on the racetrack? Well, again, I think that Wall Street opinion is split right now. A lot of people are still giving the president a lot of credit for his efforts to deregulate, to repeal a lot of parts of the Dodd-Frank law, and, of course, corporate tax reform. So I think that, you know, opinion is split. Some people still believe that he will come back to traditional Republican principles, that this is, you know, a limited war, his advisors will talk him out of it, or, you know, he won't, he won't let this escalate to the point where it will actually, uh, you know, have, have really devastating impacts on Wall Street. And I think there's another sector, probably a smaller, a smaller percentage that is starting to worry that this president is unpredictable and doesn't really understand the economic fundamentals of our economy and may blunder into a really disastrous move that he can't backtrack out of. Alan Ward, is this, is this posing a problem for Republicans on the Hill that want to back a strong economy, but seeing these indicators should give them pause as far as which is worse, being a Republican in Congress that is part of a new recession or being a Republican in Congress that could find themselves on the wrong end of a president tweet. This freaks out a whole bunch of Republicans uh, who have spent some time thinking about these issues uh, for a long period of time, and they're horrified. Uh, the irony is that there's, there's a couple of members of the Senate, for example, who seem to like what's going on, and they happen to be Democrats. Um, I'm not saying that that's the pervasive mood among Democrats, but Sherrod Brown, for example, from Ohio, who's, whose uh, state has suffered con- significantly in uh, in recent decades. Bernie Sanders uh, has has been uh, has <laughs> has said some grudgingly complimentary things. So if you want to associate your economic policy with those two guys, you might want to embrace what the president's doing. So my question is, Ken, is is this strong economy truly sustainable, or are we dealing with what could be looked at as a false positive or smoke and mirrors in some instances? Is that for Ken? Sorry? Yeah, that was for you, Admiral Ken. Sorry, sorry. Um, well, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm one of those people that, that – maybe naively believes that that 
that our economy is is pretty much a, a cyclic uh, type of animal, and that people like the president and the Congress can do some things to uh, create uh, a, a positive wave or a negative wave, but as far as being able to directly impact and control, um, uh, you know, or, or um, have a great deal of power over it, I, I don't believe that. Um, you know, I think Bill Clinton happened to be one of the luckiest guys on the on the planet because you know he he came in the office on the uh, as as the economy started to boom and the internet really kind of drove a lot of of uh, some of the uh, the pluses. And then George W. Bush, luckiest unluckiest guy on the planet uh, because um, again the bottom fell out in, in the the last the last weeks of of, of his watch. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I had a, a, a one of my in-laws, you know, justify the things that that the president's doing by saying the economy's booming, and I, I'm just, you know, I'm just sitting there going, yeah, but I'm not someone that attributes all of that that great that greatness to him, and I never will. I, I don't believe it. And Alan, you know, you may have to hold uh, an after-school session with me to to to, uh, to train me otherwise, but uh, I've not seen anything in in 40 plus years to make me think otherwise. No, no, yeah. I completely agree with you. You, you need to wake about, you, you need to wait about three years uh, before, before you can start attributing uh, even, even begin to link economic results to a, a particular president. Um, and, and uh, in a, in a meaningful way. Now this president seemed to, to, to benefit from a, a, a slow but steady recovery that was ready for a bump he got that bump. He thought this was all about him. He tried to take full credit, um, but uh, and that bump continued into this year until he started doing this crazy stuff, and uh, and now we're down on the year. Uh, the Dow, uh, using the Dow as the measure, um, down on the year on 2018. And uh, I don't know when he's going to start worrying about that. He was bragging, bragging, bragging for the, the whole first year and the first few months of this year. Um, and now he's gone quiet, even as he's taking actions that in this case, I think, really do uh, uh, pr- present some potential harm. So you can screw stuff up in ways that will have a negative impact. It's really hard to, to, uh, to do things that will have an obvious, sustained, positive impact. Uh, Alan, one way to stay with you is, is it, it sounds like based off what you were saying, that it takes kind of three years before we see the economic policies of a, of a newly seated president to really take effect. Does it strike you is that just about the time we get into 2020 that we could start seeing this economic powerhouse that is President Trump, we're starting to see some of the luster rub off? The luster's already rubbing off. Again, I don't want to draw too quick a conclusion about it because what he, what, what, as they say, what the Lord gives, the Lord can take away. And, and this president can turn on a dime. He can claim victory with the Chinese uh, when the Chinese make some symbolic act and rescind uh, uh, the tariffs, for example. And his, he's not going to lose his base, and he may uh, prompt the Wall Street to, 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 to breathe a big sigh of relief. I don't know with this guy. I don't know. I hate the unpredictability um, uh, because it does pose risks. And what, what markets like, what businesses like is stability, is predictability, is 
tax laws and regulatory laws and tariff laws that stay fairly consistent. They can adjust to cha small changes around the margin. What they can't adjust to very easily is huge disruptions. External events can also be a huge disruption, um, but but uh, you know and those are things that that you don't have you don't have much control of as a president. But this president, uh, who's such a know-it-all and is so convinced that he is uniquely smart on this stuff. Uh, uh, does have some executive powers and uh, and and he's abusing them and and creating a lot of uncertainty and the markets are beginning to reflect it. Dan Lipner, is, is this a possibility that you, we could see the Democrats capitalize on this in 2018 in the midterm? It's possible that Trump's space force will come to reality. Um, but in this case, yeah, I, 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 I am looking forward to, the, to uh, my party's chances uh, in the upcoming elections. Sharmila, outside of Space Force, is, is this something that you think the, the Democrats can capitalize on in November? I hope so. Um, with the sort of the short attention span of the news media, um, it really is going to depend on whether – you know, the president is going to keep doubling down on on his policies through the election and whether the media keeps covering it or whether or not a, you know, larger controversy or a larger accomplishment happens in the intervening time. Oh, that, our, that's, that's very sad to say, but our electorates and our media's memory span is is short as it is, and it's become even shorter in the age of Trump. And Justin, no, right. there is there, there's a real risk of. Hold on, yeah, sorry. Just one quick Sorry. So, sorry. Some 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 number of, of, of days ago, John Boehner was getting interviewed, and in, and in, um, and he was asked about the um, the viability of the Republican Party, and he made the comment, "The Republican Party is asleep somewhere. That this is the party of Trump." Um, I I think it's going to take something really really big and sizable to wake up. Um, the 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 moral the good moral leadership that's inside the Republican Party, and if it takes if it takes uh, the Democrats uh, sweeping the House and the Senate in November, that might just be the wake up call that uh, that the, that the rest of the party that that think that thinks like normal people are supposed to think to wake up and and, and uh, get a get a handle on things. Then you know what? Then so be it. Alan Moore, last word to you. Yeah, I just wanted to remind everybody that that another another economic uh, factor that could creep up is inflation. Um, when the when the cost of goods uh, across the board starts to rise, it, interest rates go up. We've got significant deficits. There, are, so so interest rates are. are uh, I'm sorry, uh, it, uh, uh, prices are under pressure from uh, slowly rising in, interest rates, and now they're going to also be under pressure from uh, the Chinese, and they also could be under pressure if the Chinese decide to modify their willingness to purchase uh, U.S. Treasury securities. We could have some inflation that starts to show up in housing, in in autos, in retirement savings, and so on. And and those things start hurting the pocketbook uh, in a different kind of way. It's fine if the market, the the Dow Jones is, is, is continues to be up, but what about uh, prices and and ability to afford stuff for for the little guy. My la my last thought here is, 
on immigration and if the president doesn't start participating in a in a in a in a significant change on this grotesque behavior of separation i think you may see a few senators simply saying mr president you know we want to support you we care about you a lot but we're not going to vote for any more judges unless you fix this the president loves to leverage other people, but you've got some senators who are quitting who don't like the president. You've got uh, the Susan Collinses of the world, Orrin Hatch was out there. Um, you, you could get two, three, four senators who simply are going to say, okay, you use your leverage, we're going to use ours. Um, and especially if they're not running anymore, they could stop the, 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 uh, the steady pattern of approving judges. It's kind of operating below the the radar, but it's steady and consistent. Right. And it's one of the big right. legacies of this president. So I just remind everybody that right. that's also out there uh, as, a, as a point of leverage to change this policy. Good point. I'll let that be the last word. Hey, it is now 10 minutes before the end of the show. And at this time, we like to bring in from an undisclosed location somewhere on Cape Cod is our associate producer, Audrey Howerton. Audrey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing fantastic, Audrey. Uh, this is the part of the show where we talk about the parachute pool, where we've seen all kinds of changes in the uh, administration. The one change we do have to point out, by parachute the way, is, 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 is yeah, exactly the one change we do have to note is in fact that uh, we've seen our first incarceration as a result of the Mueller investigation. That being Paul Manafort. Paul Manafort, for all intents and purposes, may have spent his last day of freedom last Friday when he was taken into custody and brought to a holding facility somewhere in Virginia uh, to await trial. So that's going to be an interesting play. But, Audrey, would you please go down the parachute pool? Who won last week? Nobody won. Um, But Sharmila, you had Rudy Giuliani. Ken, you had Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Dan, you had Sonny Perdue. Alan, Larry Kudlow, and Justin Radroenstein. Okay, no, none of us won. So now we go around the table, and since Sarah Huckabee Sanders seems to be the closest, because we saw a lot of rumors going around that she might be, her and Raj might be departing the comm staff. Uh, I want to, Sharmila, I want to go with you. Who do you pick this week? Um, I'm actually going to pick Kristen Nielsen in the hopes that she resigns in protest of this atrocious uh, family separation policy. Damn it, you took mine. All right, you've got Kirsten Nielsen. Ah, good pick. Dan Lipner, to you. Who do you pick? I am going back to my original pick of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and as a tiebreaker, uh, if it comes to it, if she is the one to go, uh, I should point out I was the first person to pick her. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) noted. Alan Moore, who do you pick? Nice try, Dan. Um, I'm going to go back to my old standby, Scott Pruitt, who continues to find uh, ways to embarrass the administration. He's he, he's just got to be great, grateful for the disaster on the southern border because otherwise we'd be paying more attention to him. And uh, Admiral Ken, who do you pick? Melania Trump. <laughs> there's only so that much embarrassment. Guess. There's only so much. There's only so much embarrassment a woman should take have to take on the part of her husband. I'm sorry. 
Uh, I'm going to go with I'm going to go with Larry Kudlow. I think that Larry's heart attack was a wake up sign for him. I think that he's getting tired of having to defend really bad economic decisions made by somebody who really doesn't understand the economics of the of everything going on. Well, he can't even spell go, economics. Yeah, well, that too. But I'm going to go with Larry Kudlow. I think he's he got a get out of jail free card when he had his little health scare last week. And by the way, I hear he is doing better. So. Mazel to uh, Larry Cudlow there. Hey, uh, that being said, on behalf of associate producer uh, Audrey uh, Audrey Howerton, Admiral Ken Caradine, Alan Moore, uh, Sharma Achari, and Dan Lipner, I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell, also known as Captain The first Cosmic space force recruit. Nope, nope. I am known as Captain Cosmic Flipper, Galactic Coxswain of the U.S. Space Force, uh, we're going to monitor that situation because that you can't, you, there's so much we can do with that. Uh, but we will be back next week live from Washington, D.C. for the best political culture you've never heard of, Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. You can follow us on our website at backroompolitics.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at, uh, at backroompolitics. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash backroompoliticsradio. And always remember, you can also subscribe to From the Cutting Room Floor, our daily political briefing that happens at the end of the day, courtesy of Audrey Harrison. And you can also send your email and fan mail to info at backroompolitics.org. Have a great week, America. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Backroom Politics.